Good morning, this is David Bennett, and this is Bitcoin And, a podcast where I try to find the edge effect between the worlds of Bitcoin, gaming, permaculture, podcasting, and education to gain a better understanding of all. Edge effect is a concept from ecology describing a greater diversity of life where the edges of two systems overlap. While species from either system can be found at the edge, it is important to note there are species in the overlap that exist in neither system, and that is what I seek to uncover. So join me in discovering the variety of things being created as Bitcoin rubs up against other systems. It is 6.13 a.m. Central Daylight Time. It's the 23rd of October, 2020. It's Friday and it's episode 308 of Bitcoin. And let's talk to Art Designed by SF on Twitter. He says, I wish I had known some Bitcoin maximalist in 2013 before I was stupid enough to lose coins on Mt. Gox. Rage quitting in 2014. Losing more coin in BTCE shutdown getting back in at around the all-time high of 2017 and falling for mostly shitcoin until I got my wits about me halfway through 2018. What a ride. It's not that we're salty by design. We're not really trying to be mean. We're, we're literally saying, what you're doing is wrong. You're, this is, you have a bad idea, okay? Please don't execute upon this shitcoinery or keeping your funds on an exchange. These are all bad ideas. We get into your shit, not because we're just, you know, want to be salty all damn day, but because we're like, we've either made the mistakes ourselves already, or we watch somebody else make the mistakes and took warning instead of saying, you know what? I can execute on that better than, better than they did. So therefore uh, I won't get burned. And no, Maximalism isn't about being salty. Maximalism is saying this, what you're doing is a bad idea. Okay. That's, that's all that is. And it actually has helped uh, on several occasions, but the uh, people who are, you know, shit coiners, they really don't like maximalism and they're just going ape shit about it over the last couple of days. Sorry about that. That was an alarm that I set. Um, they're, they've been going ape shit about it over the last couple of days. It's like, they just, it's, I don't know, man, it's, it's like, it's weird not watching them be able to contain themselves and just, it was, it was one of those, it was one of those uh, memes where it was like, literally nobody said anything. And all of a sudden shit coiners went, you freaking maximalists. We were just sitting here minding our own business, man. Everything was fine. And then the price went up and apparently that's what made everybody just get all testy and shit. Okay. Let's get into the news here, man. Nick Chong is writing this for BTC Times. Investing in Bitcoin is like investing in early Apple or Google, Paul Tudor Jones. Bitcoin surge past 13,000 has not gone unnoticed by the mainstream media. That, okay. Uh, CNBC brought on Melton Demirs, CSO of CoinShares, then billionaire Wall Street investor Paul Tudor Jones to talk about the currency uh, after the rally, or sorry, cryptocurrency. In Tudor Jones's interview on Thursday morning, the hedge fund veteran said that he thinks investing in Bitcoin now is like investing in Apple or Google prior to the tech boom. Quote, Bitcoin has this enormous contingence of really, really smart and sophisticated people who believe in it. It's like investing with Steve Jobs and Apple or investing in Google early. The investor made headlines earlier this year when he sent a research note to his clients indicating to them that he had changed his investment mandate to include exposure to Bitcoin futures. He added that his, he has personal exposure of low single digits to Bitcoin, also through the futures market. Tall Tudor, Paul Tudor Jones wrote at the time, quote, I am not an advocate of Bitcoin ownership and isolation, but do recognize its potential in a period when we have the most unorthodox economic policies in modern history, Bitcoin reminds me of gold when I first got into the business in 1976, end quote. In his latest interview, he elaborated on the thesis he conveyed in the research note, quote, the reason I recommend Bitcoin is because it was uh, one of the menu of inflation trades like gold, like TIPS break-evens, 
like copper, like being long yield curve. And I came to the conclusion that Bitcoin was going to be the best inflation trade, end quote. He references the assets halvings, whereby the number of Bitcoin issued per block is cut approximately in half every four years, creating a supply slope that ends at 21 million coins. Tudor Jones thinks that Bitcoin remains in its first ending inning and will see even greater growth in the years ahead. But don't take my word for it. Listen to the man talk about it himself. Uh, Bitcoin has a lot of the characteristics of being an early investor in a tech company. And I didn't realize it until uh, after, uh, unfortunately, I came on your show and got besieged by God knows how many different people on Bitcoin. Uh, and again, I've, I've got a small single digit investment in Bitcoin. That's it. I'm not a Bitcoin flag bearer. But what I learned was, and what I was so surprised by, is that Bitcoin has this enormous contingent of really, really smart and sophisticated people who believe in it. Uh, and it's and and now when I think of the menu of of the inflation hedges, uh, the the thing that Bitcoin has again, it's like investing with Steve Jobs and Apple or investing in Google early. You've got this group of that's, by the way, crowdsourced all over the world that are dedicated to seeing Bitcoin succeed in it becoming a commonplace store of value and transactional to boot uh, at, a, at a very basic level. And so I've never had an inflation hedge where you have a kicker that you also have great intellectual capital behind it. So that makes me... Uh, even more constructive on it. But not everybody is <clears throat> as happy as uh, Paul Tudor Jones is. Uh, seems that Dave Portnoy or Davey Day Trader may be a little salty. Robert Stevens is going to tell us how <clears throat> in this piece written for Decrypt.co sometime yesterday. Bitcoin is pumping. Is Barstool's Dave Portnoy salty? <laughs> I'll bet she probably is. Uh, actually, you know what? Let's find out. Hey, Dave, are you salty? I'll tell you one thing. I follow so many Bitcoin people and crypto. It's like Rico Bosco's hype team. When Bitcoin starts moving, I mean, they do the lambada all over the internet. They're just in like the conga line. The Bitcoin people like like doing the dun 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 I mean, they're just running around, sucking dicks, doing the Lombada, doing the Congo. Yeah, it's a Conga, Dave. Conga, not Congo. That's the place in the world. Conga is dance. Now, I think that's what you're probably trying to get out of that salty mouth of yours. Dave Portnoy, president of Barstool Sports and board day trader, sold all his Bitcoin months ago but he still can't let it go. New video suggested anyway. Uh, said Portnoy in the video that he tweeted, I follow so many people, it's like Rico Bosco's hype team. Rico Bosco was an ebullient frequent caller on one of Barstool's podcasts. Quote, Bitcoin starts moving. I mean, they do the Lombada. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Went, oh, we heard it, dude. We heard it. Uh, but he goes, this goes on to say, Bortnoy is refer referring to all of the hullabaloo crypto Twitter has made over Bitcoin's price rise. The price of Bitcoin rose to highs of 13185 this week, the highest it's been since the end of last June, when Bitcoin briefly peaked at 13770 Remember, back in March, amid the coronavirus crash, since called Black Thursday, Bitcoin was worth as low as $3,870. Yeah, man, that one, that was bad. Crypto Twitter, uh, YouTube, and yes, even crypto news sites have always been like this. After the whiff of Wall Street money or the faintest sniff of a price bump, the alarm is sounded and distributed across a global network of thousands of computers. Even Portnoy joined in the fun. This summer, Portnoy invested heavily in Chainlink. And Bitcoin, back when BTC was priced around 11500 he promoted his investments on Twitter <clears throat> using his catch-it as Davy Day Trader <clears throat> to wax lyrical about the coins. He taunted the SEC, suggesting crypto was the last place on earth to pump and dump all day without repercussions. 
He later sold his Bitcoin, worth about $1 million, he claimed. Quote, crypto people are just about the most enjoyable group of people I've ever encountered, he said in one of his daily day Davy Day Trader segments. They're freaking crazy. They're crazy on social media. They're crazy on Twitter. They have the same effing personality I do. They're gamblers at heart. They slant. They can laugh at themselves, and they just want to make money. No, Dave, that's not exactly all true, but I'm sorry you're so salty. I, I really am. It's got to suck. Um, but we tried to tell you. Uh, again, maximalists are not in it just to you know make you make you mad. So, but uh, uh, now, all kidding aside, <clears throat> we have this one from the Department of Justice. Oh. On October the 22nd, Nicholas Day put pen to, or fingers to keys, pen to paper, whatever, and did this for Coindesk.com. DOJ's crypto framework is a complete disaster for digital privacy rights. The United States Department of Justice recent crypto enforcement framework is a threat to digital privacy rights, according to an attorney. For the Electronic Frontier Foundation, quote, it was a complete disaster for privacy and anonymity and civil liberties in the cryptocurrency space, said Marta Belcher, special counsel to the Digital Rights Advocacy Group. The framework, released earlier this month, details the United States government's approach to crimes committed using cryptocurrencies, but also appears to define some broad policy positions on crypto and crypto exchanges more generally. Belcher, who is an attorney with Ropes and Gray, and an outside counsel to Protocol Labs said the framework released earlier this month raises many concerns about privacy rights, pointing to language on peer-to-peer exchanges, mixers, tumblers, and anonymity-enhanced cryptocurrencies, or privacy coins. In Belcher's view, there are a number of legal concerns with the crypto enforcement framework as laid out by DOJ's Cyber Digital Task Force. Language in the framework would appear to have implications for individuals sending cryptocurrencies to one another, as well as exchangers offering transactions as a service. The enforcement framework even had a section on mixers and tumblers, noting that entities qualifying as money services businesses are subject to the BSA, Bank Secrecy Act, or, quote, similar in international regulations. <coughs> the DOJ argument or DOJ's arguments against cryptocurrencies are similar to those made against encryption, another law enforcement boogeyman. The DOJ, alongside other members of the Five Eyes Intelligence Alliance, plus India and Japan, published a statement calling for backdoor access to encrypted messaging services and other systems last weekend. The statement reflects law enforcement agencies' fundamental discomfort <clears throat> with any technology that could allow for private interactions, said Jake Ch- Chervinsky, general counsel at Compound Finance. The enforcement framework is making exactly the same argument you've seen being made for decades about encryption, Belcher told Coindesk. These are the exact same arguments that are against encryption, and they're coming from the exact same place as the fight against encryption. The intelligence agencies claim backdoors and encryption protocols and systems would make it easier to identify and prosecute crimes committed using privacy-protecting tools, including cryptocurrencies. The statement ignores the technical realities of building strong encryption. He noted, quote, The Five Eyes, coalition continues, to overlook a few basic points about encryption. First, that strong encryption itself enhances public safety and prevents crime by protecting people and their data. Second, that it's impossible to build backdoors into encrypted systems without creating extraordinary new cybersecurity risks. And third, that that cryptography tools are increasingly open source and can't easily be cabined or controlled at their request, he said. Many cryptocurrency companies and developers, for example, wouldn't be able to comply with a backdoor request because of this open sourcing, he said. According to the DOJ's crypto framework, a P2P exchanger is considered a money services businesses business, which means it is required to abide by record keeping and reporting requirements as defined by the Bank Secrecy Act and other regulations if they buy or sell convertible virtual currencies. The framework defines individual exchangers as individuals who provide crypto transaction services to others, but Belcher believes. It could also be used to apply to two individuals who just transact between each other, 
not just individuals acting as service providers. That's where we start getting getting weird. That's the whole, uh, we're just going to make it illegal shit. And, you know, again, good luck. Good luck. Because there's, I mean, if you, if you trap or close down the only escape valve that, the, that humanity has to get out of your bullshit, you're looking at a civil war. Except it's going to be global. Right? It's going to be a worldwide revolution. Okay? Civil war, revolution, whatever the hell you want to call it. But it's going to be, basically, it's going to be people against their government. You guys are doing this. Not, well, not you. But, I mean, it's like governments are doing this. They're, they're causing this. It's not our fault. But you keep, the, you keep the lid on a boiling kettle of water long enough, and you put more and more pressure on it so steam doesn't release, what you've got is a bomb, not a vessel for cooking. Okay, let's continue. Quote, individual exchangers, <clears throat> as well as platforms and websites that fail to collect and maintain customer or transactional data or maintain an effective AML-CFT program may be subject to civil and criminal penalties, the framework said referring to anti-money laundering, combating the financing of terrorism regulations. It has nothing to do with money laundering. Your own banks are doing it. Your own banks are doing it, and you know it. This isn't about any money laundering. This is about the fact that you hate us. Okay, it's becoming increasingly clear that you're all full of shit. <clears throat> the distinction is between software providers and service providers, Stravinsky said. Software providers, who, which compose a large part of the crypto industry, deploy decentralized protocols and publish open source projects that the writers cannot control or modify. Service providers, on the other hand, offer permissioned proprietary platforms that the operators can control. In Belcher's view, the crypto framework puts both individuals who write code for peer-to-peer transactions as well as those who use this code at risk for enforcement action. Quote, There's liability on people using these exchanges in order to exchange cryptocurrencies anonymously with others. To say I can't send you cryptocurrency using a script, you and I can't uh, transact with each other directly in a peer-to-peer way without that data being collected somewhere by a third party is a complete affront to privacy and civil liberty, end quote. Individuals can easily conduct similar transactions using cash, he said. No one questions that I can hand you money without there needing to be a written record of that. Well, just wait. The framework also took aim at privacy coins and other tools to obfuscate transactions like mixers and tumblers. Belcher said it is wrong to focus on whether privacy coins can be compliant with the BSA and other laws. Cryptocurrencies could potentially transfer the privacy protections that come from cash transactions and shift them online. Quote, the thing that is so important for me is that you can transact anonymously and you can take the protections of cash and you can transfer that to the online world, she said. The idea that merely by exercising your right to transact anonymously is indicative of you committing a crime is wrong, in my view. (laughs) End quote. It just ain't your view. That should be everybody's view. This is ridiculous. I mean, it, it's it's almost as if the government has never even heard my name, and yet I know if they did or looked at me, they would automatically go, you're a criminal. Well, how do you know, sir? Well, you're a United States citizen, aren't you? Well, yes, sir. Well, then you're a freaking criminal. We don't like you, and we're going to make sure, and we're going to make sure to do everything in our in our power. We're going to do everything to either drive you into the grave or drive you out of the country because we hate you. We don't allow you to transact and do any kind of financial business with any country in the world because you're a United States citizen, unless they comply. But since our compliance is so onerous and so difficult and so almost impossible to actually do correctly, nobody wants to do business with you as a United States citizen because, sir, we have determined that you are a criminal. Even though we don't know your name, you may or may not have a police record, you're a criminal. You're doing business, you're a criminal. You want to do a transaction, you're a criminal. You even think that you want privacy, you're a criminal. You know, these people, all of these people in, in D.C. need to be replaced by Bitcoiners as soon as possible, okay? I guess that means we have to run for office now, and I don't really ever want to do that, but I might, I might have to. I mean, I might have to. This is just becoming ridiculous, okay? So anyway, 
Quote, the facts here are egregious and ghastly. A service provider that profits from software that provides money transmission services must comply, must keep records, and must report. Plain as day and should be obvious by now, Chernivsky wrote, or Chervinsky wrote, pointing to various facts in the case, according, including the operator's boasting of transaction privacy for customers, transactions conducted for Iran-affiliated accounts, and payments facilitated for at least one child exploration site. And they're talking about uh, a particular case uh, <clears throat> that was uh, had something to do, well, it was the U.S. government followed the framework with its first enforcement action against a Bitcoin mixer 11 days later when the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network fined Larry Dean Harmon, the alleged operator of a mixer, $60 million for his operations. That's what their Chervinsky is talking about. <clears throat> Chervinsky agreed, noting that Harmon was treated like a service provider and not a software provider. It's possible that the DOJ's framework can help contribute to financial censorship, an ongoing issue within the United States, Belcher said. Traditional payments giants surveil and censor a number of transactions, including innocuous ones that might upset certain sensibilities. Quote, there are all these examples of a kinky bookstore or a nonprofit that supports LGBT fiction, getting their accounts shut down by Visa and MasterCard, and also famously things like WikiLeaks that then turn to cryptocurrency when they can't be served by the financial intermediaries that are censoring that, she said. These transactions aren't illegal, Belcher noted. A cashless society is effectively a surveillance society in this respect, she said. Actual crimes committed using cryptocurrencies should be prosecuted, and it's a benefit to the crypto community when they are. The DOJ report includes a dozen of, or dozens of examples of crimes that were committed using or at some point touchy, touching on cryptocurrencies, including several high, recent high-profile cases However, blaming cryptocurrencies for their use in crime does not make sense, she said. Quote, I think they're missing that cash has always been used to facilitate illegal activity, she said. We don't blame Ford when one of its cars is used as a getaway vehicle in a bank robbery. Okay, so, well, there you go. Uh, this is going to get bad. And there's, there's no way about it, or, or no way to get out of it. It's going to get bad. War is coming. It, it kind of depends what kind of artillery we're going to have on our side. And we've already got quite a bit. There's like, at this point, uh, countries in at least, or, or sorry, businesses in at least two countries uh, have uh, lots of Bitcoin. And they're not, I mean, they're going to fight. They're going to fight back. And it's like, it's not that, it's not really like they're the ones that are going to win it for us. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about here is the fact that a battle is coming and it's going to be, it's going to be up to everybody. It's going to be up to the heavy artillery. It's going to be up to light infantry. It's going to be up to the single dude with the boots on the ground behind a rock, you know, taking aim at, you know, as a sniper on some target out in the field. I mean, all, you know, don't kill anybody clearly, but still, you know, battle is battle and battle is coming. These people are not going to stop. Again, the sooner we get all of uh, the district of criminals, uh, eviscerated and then restocked with actual Bitcoiners, you know, people who have some kind of ethics, this is going to continue and it's going to get worse. So maybe we all should start running for starting at the local level. Maybe we should run for city council. Maybe we should run for county commissioner and move our way up from there. The problem is, is you know what happens? You get, you, you're going to get, uh, you're going to get compromised along that road. You know, so I don't know. I don't know what the answer is, um, except to just continue to continue to hold and continue to fight. But um, this is an this is kind of an interesting one. Benjamin uh, Pyrus is writing this for Cointelegraph. Apparently, Bitcoin flippened PayPal's market cap after PayPal made their Bitcoin announcement. I think this is I think this is apropos, honestly. Uh, the asset has overtaken the network's market cap following an announcement that PayPal intends to integrate crypto. Since PayPal announced adding Bitcoin to its platform, the asset's market cap has exceeded that of PayPal itself. Ironic. <laughs> At press time, Bitcoin holds a market cap of $239,877,416,968 dollars. 
just recently surpass, surpassing PayPal on a, what is it? Asset Dash's list of the largest stocks, ETFs, and crypto assets. Bitcoin is now or now holds the 21st spot on the list with PayPal right below at $238 billion. So we're a billion, we're worth a billion dollars more. <laughs> Whatever a company, asset, or otherwise overtakes a rival valuation, the crypto space loosely refers to the event as a flippening. In 2017, a number of folks speculated on a potential Ethereum flippening, which would see ETH's market cap rise higher than BTC's. As of press time, no crypto asset has ever flippened Bitcoin's market cap. On October the 21st, PayPal confirmed rumors that PayPal plans to add Bitcoin, Ethereum, Bcash, and Litecoin to its list of payment options in 2021. When used for transactions, the assets will automatically convert into cash on the back end for merchant recipients. Bitcoin saw a standout price performance following the news, which seemingly acted as a catalyst to push the, the, the asset's price even higher after a number of bullish days. Over the past 48 hours, BTC's price has soared more than $1,000. So there, there, there you go. That's nice. Uh, for we have the first ransomware attack in the election 2020 as it hits voting infrastructure in Georgia. Samuel Haig writing this one for Coin Telegraph sometime early this morning. Uh, a ransomware attack targeting the government systems of Georgia's Hall County also impacted key voting infrastructure. It has been revealed. Local officials initially released few details regarding the October 7th attack, stating that quote. Critical systems within the Hall County government networks have been affected. Today, CNN reported that the incident may be the first ransomware attack to hit the election infrastructure this political season. According to Hall County spokesperson Katie Crumley, the county's voter signature database and voting precinct map were heavily impacted by the attack. Oh man, that sounds pretty directed to me, dude. However, Crumley noted the county is in the process of bringing affected systems back online, including the map and the database. Quote, the voting process of our citizens has not been impacted due to the network issues, end quote. The attackers are not believed to have targeted Hall County's voting system specifically, with many of the county services being disrupted, including, oh, okay, phone and email. Speaking to Cointelegraph, Brett Kalau, or Kalu, of cybersecurity firm Emisoft noted that U.S. local government entities have been falling victim to ransomware attacks at a rate of approximately three per week, although he believes the impact on voting is more likely to be collateral damage. But Kalu believes we'll see more incidents impacting voting systems ahead of the election day, with the impact going way beyond mere technical damage. Quote, there is also a very real risk that they may shake voter confidence in the integrity of the vote, especially as confidence may already be quite low. <laughs> Even if I had confidence in the actual vote, look who you're voting for. Look who we've been voting for for decades, okay? If that's not enough to just sour you on this shit for like, oh, I don't know, ever, I don't know what will, but concerns have been mounting around the threat that ransomware may pose the United States presidential election for weeks, with security firm NTT warning last month that criminal actors may have already penetrated key government networks and could be waiting to cause havoc closer to the election. Oh, it's a, it's a terror cell, man. Callow said that criminals were interested in gaining maximum leverage. Quote, what better time to extort money from a government by holding its systems to ransom than the time those systems are needed the most, he said. On October the 12th, Microsoft announced it had disrupted the major ransomware attack TrickBot which was found to invoke political movements such as Black Lives Matter to trick victims into downloading malware. The IT conglomerate is also freely offering its security products to organizations involved in the election. Oh, of course. You know, everything about this is bad, but none of it that's on the surface. Right, the, the, the fact, you know, for, well, for one, the fact that the precinct map as well as the SIG or the signature database being affected, that's, I don't know. I still, they say that that's maybe collateral damage. I don't know, man. Maybe the email systems and the phone systems are the collateral damage and they went exactly, they were targeting exactly what they want and they got it. Okay. 
But the next thing, Microsoft offering its security products for free to governments involved in the election? Ooh, man, I don't know, but gosh darn it, you know, private companies and governments acting together in tandem, especially around something that you're kind of not forced to do, but yeah, kind of impelled to do. See, I don't know, man, I think they spell that with an F. I think it's called fascism. I'm not sure, but... It's quite possible that we may, I don't know, this whole, it's all bullshit for one, okay? So don't get fooled into thinking anything else. Uh, if we, <clears throat> if there was actually good quality people to vote for, I'd be pissed about this. <clears throat> I actually would. I'd, I'd, I would sincerely be pissed, uh, or I, I sincerely might even believe about the, all the Russian hacking. Had it happened during a time when an election held people that I thought were high quality human beings, but I haven't seen a high quality human being run for president. I don't know. I, it very well may be like ever, maybe the, maybe Reagan, Reagan seemed like he was a nice, he was a pretty, he was a good dude. He was surrounded by assholes like Bush. He was a real good dude, but still, I mean, there's going to be a lot of people that hate Reagan because of the whole voodoo economics thing. And if you don't remember that, it's okay. We don't need to go into it. But honestly, as far as a person, Reagan was the last guy that I even thought was even remotely decent. And even then, we had the Iran, what, Iran, Iran Contra thing, weapons for Coke. I mean, and honestly, I think he actually didn't know a damn thing about that. But I'll bet you my bottom dollar that Bush did, because that was a CIA deal. And Bush, before he became, you know, after or before he was vice president for Ronald Reagan, was director of the CIA. I don't, you know, let's let's run some numbers. All right, let's crank this up with energy futures. I got oil up. Okay, so uh, West Texas Intermediate is up. Oh, I don't know. It looks like it's going to be point, yeah, a third of a point. So it's going to cost about forty dollars and seventy-seven cents to get a uh, get a barrel of West Texas Intermediate. Brent North Sea crude is also up, uh, also a third. So it's going to cost forty-two dollars and sixty-one cents to get a hold of that. Natural gas doing what natural gas does apparently by going down two and a half points for seemingly no reason whatsoever. Gold is up a half a point, so it's going to open at nineteen hundred and four. Well. It's $1,914. Silver is up three quarters of a point, though. It's going to open at almost 25 bucks an ounce. Platinum is up 2.3 points. It's going to open at 904 bucks. Palladium is opening uh, high at uh, point, well, it's up a quarter of a point, $2,402 for an ounce of palladium. So let's see what index is. Oh, we're saved. We're so saved, it's not even funny. Is if meh can be counted as being saved, but the Dow futures are up a third of a point. The S&P futures are up a quarter of a point. NASDAQ futures up a fifth and the S&P mini is up a half. So let's talk about real money. Where are we at with Bitcoin? Oh, we're still above 13,000. Check it out. <clears throat> we have $13,014. I got a high. It's going to be a bit asset at 13,018 bucks. And my low is going to be at, let's see, where is it going to be at? Hit BTC, $12,994. So damn tight trading range here. 321,000 transactions were performed in the last 24 hours. That's 13,360 transactions on average per hour. 3.3 million BTC or $43 billion US have been transacted in that last 24 hours. 137 or let's say 138,000 BTC have been sent in that 24 hour period. 10.3 BTC is the average transaction value and the median transaction value is now at 0.055 BTC. That's about 713 bucks. Block times are very high, 11 minutes and 15 seconds. 1.15 BTC are being taken in fees on a per block basis and damn near 150 BTC have been taken in fees overall in the last 24 hours. We've had a drop in hash rate by three quarters of one point. 
we are down to 131.8 exahashes per second. Ethereum is at 418, Bcash at 273, Litecoin at 56, BSV at 169, Ethereum Classic at 5.5, Dogecoin still up 0.0027, 38,000 transactions on Dogecoin in the last 24 hours puts it ahead of Bcash clearly and Ethereum Classic Litecoin is still over 100,000 transactions in a 24-hour period. Still don't know what's going on there. I, You know, and what's weird, <clears throat> I kind of expected that to bump today because Litecoin was one of the shit coins that was added to um, uh, the PayPal, or was included in the PayPal announcement, rather. And I'm rather surprised to see Litecoin still having pretty much the same transaction volume as it did yesterday and the day before and the day before that so i don't know i kind of figured litecoin would get more of a bump than this but apparently not let's see what clark moody's doing hey clark how you doing pal he sees a price of thirteen thousand and twenty dollars that means that one dollar will get you seven thousand six hundred and eighty satoshis there are forty-two thousand transactions waiting to clear, and it's going to take about forty blocks to clear those transactions as of right now. So, Lightning Network, we have one thousand and forty-four Bitcoin in the Lightning Network. We have that means that there's about thirteen point six million dollars US of liquidity sloshing around in that system. And there are 7,424 nodes uh, representing 35,821 channels. That seems to have dropped. Tor percentage is stable at 50.3%. We have 524.9 BTC on the, side, the Tor side of the Lightning Network. And that is going to be running over 2,481 nodes. That's going to do it for Vitals. So I keep saying, uh, talking about fighting back, and how do, how does one go about doing that? Well, there's several several things that you know can be done, should be done, must be done. There, I'm mean, just think of it as a menu on how to how we fight. Here's one way: Bitcoin hodlers get a lending option with no KYC. That's right. This is going to be hodl hodl. Okay, this is Anna Bidakova. She's writing this for CoinDesk. Uh, when? Oh, looks like yesterday. Uh, HODL HODL, or HODL HODL, depending on how you pronounce it. A non-custodial Bitcoin exchange is launching a lending product. The exchange claims it will be the first true Bitcoin DeFi or decentralized finance product. How's this fighting? Well, it's because HODL HODL is still decentralized and HODL HODL is still pretty much anonymous. And as near as I can tell, it's open source. So if you Again, as I've you know said many times, if you just feel the need to go full degen, if you got to do it, please do it on something like Hoddle Hoddle. Okay, please for the love of God. Starting this month, Bitcoiners can borrow uh, Tether, USDC, Pax, or Dai stablecoins in a peer-to-peer fashion without going through the Know Your Customer procedures, leaving their Bitcoin as collateral for a period ranging from one day to one year. The launch is following a larger crypto lending boom that took off in 2018 when venture-backed companies like Genesis Capital and BlockFi came to market. Genesis boasted $1.4 billion in active loans this August, and BlockFi CEO Zach Prince told Coindesk the company had $1.75 billion worth of crypto assets under management in October. Both firms offer fiat loans backed by cryptocurrency collateral to retail borrowers and crypto loans to institutional investors. <clears throat> the market still has room for newcomers, Prince believes. Quote, I think the space overall still has tons of opportunity. And the more smart folks building things with user value creation in mind, the better. Now, Hodel Hodel is trying to introduce true P2P lending in Bitcoin. Hodel Hodel CEO Max Kaidun told Coindesk, quote, Almost all, if not all, existing lending platforms are centralized, require KYC, and don't allow you to play by your own rules, end quote. Unlike existing crypto lending services, HODLHODL's Lend Marketplace will not act as custodians and won't store Bitcoin collateral. Instead, 
the borrowers will lock their Bitcoin in two out of three multi-sig escrows for the time of the loan and get it back when they pay back the stable coins that they borrowed. To release the funds from escrow, a transaction will need to be signed by two keys. All stablecoin transactions will happen outside of the platform, Kaidun said. There is no option to borrow or lend fiat money on lend. The platform's goal is to eliminate fiat reduced or related risks for its clients, which is impossible using a middleman such as a bank, according to the terms and conditions drafted uh, or draft shared with Coindesk. This approach is not widespread, nor is building DeFi products on the Bitcoin blockchain. Roderick Vandergraaf, founder of Lemniscap, <coughs> sorry, Lemniscap, a venture fund that recently invested in HODL HODL, said it's no surprise, quote, bringing complex financial use cases to a constrained and secure ecosystem like Bitcoin's is not an easy feat, which is evidence in the lack of projects currently offering such use cases in production, end quote. The lender and the borrower will agree on the amount, time period, interest rate of the loan, and the loan-to-value ratio, which can be anywhere between 30% and 70%. Lend will take a 2% commission from each deal. When the two parties agree on the terms, each will get one key from the multi-sig with Lend holding the third one. That third key, held by the platform, will come into play if there's a dispute between the two parties, in which case Lend will act as an arbiter and release the funds to the party that proves itself right. Okay, hold on right there. The party that proves itself right. Got to fatten that out a little bit, guys. What is right? Um, we know who who is trying to prove it, but under what condition conditions does the arbiter know who's right? All right, it's not a it's not a, a a legal court. All right, I'm just saying I'm not saying that it should be. I'm just saying we can say things like, oh, well, it's going to be okay because they'll release the funds to the party that proves itself right. And if you just stumble on without thinking about what that actually means, uh, it could be dangerous, okay? Just saying. Or if the price of Bitcoin goes down, the collateral value deprecates and the borrower fails to fix it, Lend will use the third key to liquidate the collateral, which is to release it to the lender and close the loan. The Lend team will be monitoring the price of Bitcoin on exchanges like Coindesk, Huobi, Binance, and Bitfinex to notify borrowers that their LTV ratio is approaching the threshold and that they need to top up their collateral. If HODL HODL sees the LTV in the loan rising above 75%, the borrower will get a first alert, followed by two margin calls if they fail to add collateral or repay part of the loan to get the TL or the LTV ratio back to the agreed level. At 90% LTV, HODL HODL will force liquidation of the collateral and release Bitcoin to the lender, said Maria Geico, COO of HODL HODL. Oh no, please don't have a COO. If the Bitcoin amount locked in escrow is greater than the debt, the difference will go back to the borrower. Stefan Jespers, Belgium-based Bitcoin advocate known as Whale Panda. Oh, I didn't know he had an actual name. I mean, I guess I should have, but I always just see Whale Panda. Oh, Stefan. Oh, that's a that's a good name. Okay. Anyway, uh, Whale Panda on Twitter. Invested in Lend last fall and believes the project can ride the DeFi wave launched recently by the Ethereum community, but this time with Bitcoin. Ah, God, having sloppy seconds on this is kind of making me a little ill. Quote, if you have some stable coins lying around that you aren't using, it's a nice way to make some extra money with it and you know beforehand what the interest rate will be. With most other products on the market, those rates can change frequently. Here, it's locked in for the entire duration, Jesper said. Unlike HODL HODL itself, which says it's not serving clients from the United States, Lend will be available globally, including to American Bitcoiners, though not immediately. For the first two weeks, Kaidun said U.S. customers won't be able to use Lend. Remember what I was saying about how we're all criminals? Well, this... We might as well all be in prison. Quote, it's a technical thing. We need to tweak settings on the back end, Kaidun said. Gabriel Shapiro, partner at Belcher Smolin and Van Lu Law Firm, told Coindesk that a multi-sig approach practiced by HODL HODL is currently in the gray area 
under the existing regulation in the U.S., and the law does not currently say anything about such specific situations. I'm just going to start recur- referring to all law firms at do- as Dewey, Skinnem, and Howe in the future. Just be aware. However, the fact that the platform is adjuncting disputes and determining which party the money should go to might potentially make it look like a money services business is in the eyes of the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, Shapiro said, quote, they are playing an essential role in the transmission. Over the years, U.S. regulators have been coming after crypto businesses that served American users without following the rules that a mainstream financial business would follow, including obligatory KYC AML checks and licensing procedures. The latest high-profile victim is BitMEX, a major crypto derivatives exchange. Kaidun believes <clears throat> that not touching fiat money or holding custody of clients' funds puts the exchange beyond the FinCEN supervision. No, it doesn't. When asked what HODL HODL would do if FinCEN does not agree with this approach, Kaidun said that they would leave the U.S. market. That's the end of the, end of the uh, article. It's sad. You can't touch us. How, how is it that we're so, how is it that Americans are so privileged if every other country in, on the face of the planet is so scared to do business with us? If it, ha, if it even looks like money, Nigeria doesn't want to have anything to do with you as an American citizen. South Africa doesn't want to have anything to do with you as an American citizen, unless you are flaming rich. They're not even going to waste their time. They're, I mean, as far as retail as far as money goes in the United States, at the retail level, we are screwed. We are screwed. And we've been this way for years. It's only now that all of us are learning about how all this crap works. It's only then that you begin to realize just how vile the rest of the world sees a United States citizen. It's, it's the most amazing thing in the world that a government would allow its citizenry to be toxic. You, the United States government has caused me to become a weapon in their search on how to destroy every country on the face of the earth. Because they weaponized me, I am toxic to every other country in the world. If it has anything to do with money, I, I am persona non grata, and so are you. If you're listening to this and you're a United States citizen, you are toxic. You have been weaponized. All of us have. And we didn't even know it. Why? Because we've been, we've been being built into weapons since the day of our birth. There's no way we could have seen it. We grew up in it. We were steeped in it. And now the fact that we're all awake from the matrix makes for a very bad day sometimes. It really, it really does. So, you know, I don't know how to, I don't know how to leverage ourselves out of this, but we got to do something. We got to do something, which is why I keep <clears throat> hoping beyond hope, probably that Texas will secede from the nation and the United States can sit on their debt and spin for all I give a shit because Texas, as far as, a, as a, if you were to compare it to a country has a GDP in the top seven countries of the world, Texas by itself, right? We would not be hurting for anything if we got out. The only thing that would happen is that Texans, if we did it correctly, would be would then be able to go out and do financial business with the rest of the world at the retail level and not be looked at like some kind of, I don't know, slug or something. But back to financial stuff, CME's rise in Bitcoin futures rankings signals growing institutional interest. This was written this morning by Amkar Godbull for Coindesk, and he says, as of Thursday, Bitcoin futures contracts worth $790 million were open on the CME, according to data source SKU. That's 15.8% of the global open interest tally of $5 billion the second highest contribution among major exchanges. The CME was ranking fifth on the list of biggest futures exchanges by open interest on October the 1st. The exchange's contributions to global open positions has jumped from 10 to 15.8% this month alone. So they gained 5.8% this month alone by itself. 
At the start of the year, the exchange accounted for a meager 4% of the global open interest. Quote, the CME's rise is predominantly led by institutional participation, as most entrants from that segment are prohibited from dealing in unregulated derivatives listed on retail platforms such as BitMEX and Binance, Matthew Dibb, co-founder and COO of Stack Funds, told Coindesk. The CME's regulated product also offers high standards of compliance that institutions must adhere to. While the CME ranked second on Thursday, Malta-based OKX retained the first place, accounting for nearly 20% of total open interest. In the third position was Binance, uh, the world's largest cryptocurrency spot exchange by trading volumes, which accounted for 14.3% of the total open interest. The controversial perpetuals giant BitMEX ranked fourth. Notably, BitMEX's share of global open interest has declined from 18% to 12% this month in the wake of charges that recently hit the firm in the United States. On October the 1st, the authorities charged BitMEX with illegally operating an unregistered derivatives trading platform. The CME's share of global futures open interest has risen alongside Bitcoin's three-week rally from 10500 to 13300 At press time, Bitcoin is changing hands near $13,000, representing a 20% gain on a month-to-date basis. Bitcoin's 14-day relative strength index is now reporting overbought conditions with an above-70 print. However, in a strong trending market, the indicator tends to stay overbought for a prolonged period and trap sellers on the wrong side of the market. Okay, so there you go. Open, open interest is just kind of exploding all over the place, and generally that's not going to be the retail side. Retail is involved, but this is more kind of institutional level stuff. Bitcoin is helping undocumented immigrants send money home. Well, we've always known that, but Jose Antonio Lanz, maybe you can tell us a bit more about what's going on. This was written yesterday for Decrypt.co. For migrants in search of a proverbial American dream, which you should probably wake up from at this point, in a new land, finding ways to send money back home can be a nightmare. That's especially true of undocumented immigrants who face additional legal and financial barriers to send their remittances. But for the tech-savvy among them, a surprising savior is emerging, and that's Bitcoin. Cryptocurrency analysis firm Arcane Research today published the results of its latest study on the current state of Bitcoin peer-to-peer markets. The firm found that cryptocurrencies are helping immigrants since these digital assets enable international tax-free, cheap, and quick money transfers, and without any of the red tape that's ordinarily involved in the half a trillion dollar remittance market. God, $500 billion in remittances. I'm actually kind of surprised it's not more, but... The report found that undocumented immigrants in particular are increasingly turning to -to peer-to-peer markets to buy Bitcoin and send money back home. According to Arcane, gift cards are the preferred payment methods on these types of exchanges since they circumvent banking limitations and KYC requirements for now people for now i guarantee that at one point or another they're going to get so pissed off about this that if you go and buy a i don't know a shake shack gift card at walmart or target that you're going to have to present an id to buy that so they'll know the whole thing is we got to stop it Quote, the gift card trade helps undocumented immigrants to transfer value to friends and family back home, reads the report. This method of payment is popular in North America and is, according to Arcane Research, one of the reasons behind the expansion of Paxful, an up-and-coming P2P Bitcoin exchange in the region. According to Useful Tulips, a metric site that tracks the industry, Paxful has signed up four times the trading volume of of leading P2P exchange local Bitcoins in North America. Useful Tulips Matt Alberg, was it no Alborg, explained to Arcane Research how immigrants use gift cards to send Bitcoin remittances to their relatives abroad. Quote, immigrants in Western countries transfer value abroad via gift cards on Paxful. The gift cards are purchased by the immigrant at a local store, said Alborg. The gift card is then photographed, and the photo gets sent to friends and family abroad. They later sell those gift cards on Paxful for BTC. Then they convert the BTC to local currency by selling the BTC to a buyer in the local market via one of the P2P platforms, he said. 
And while the process may seem cumbersome, the truth is that it's faster and cheaper than traditional options. Bitcoin becomes an even more viable alternative for remittances when the political or economic circumstances are more dire. A clear example is Venezuela, where nearly all remittance services are blocked from operating in the country due to the United States government sanctions. Quote, in Venezuela, PayPal, Western Union, MoneyGram don't work said Ariana Entralgo, a Venezuelan living in Argentina. Quote, I used to send money informally through one of those businesses uh, promoted on Instagram. You send a deposit here to a person. They confirm, call Venezuela and order a transfer to be uh, to a provided bank account. Now Entralgo uses Bitcoin instead, she says. Quote, what I do now is I buy Bitcoin here through local Bitcoin. And once they are on my account, I simply switch tabs to Venezuela and sell the BTC asking the buyer to deposit to my dad's uh, account. If traders are fast, everything takes 30 minutes. If traders are slow, it can take about two hours maximum, end quote. Intrago explained that this method has another advantage. Quote, you don't have to pay huge commissions, and it's better for you because most of the time the Bitcoin rates in Venezuela are very attractive, end quote. Arcane Research reported that 43% of all Bitcoin trading in Latin America happens in Venezuela, and although it's doesn't specify the role of remittances in this regard. It's not very difficult to connect the dots. Venezuela is currently undergoing a migration crisis. More than 4 million Venezuelans fled the country in 2019, according to the Brookings Institute, with many heading to neighboring Colombia. And with almost no major remittance services available, Bitcoin could be a light at the end of the tunnel for Venezuelans living abroad who need to send money home. And it appears that the government of Nicolas Maduro, which has long looked to cryptocurrency for potential solutions to its economic troubles, is seeing the light as well. Earlier this year, it launched an official state-run Bitcoin remittance service. (laughs) I think that was more about buying uh, passports and whatnot. But yeah, uh, again, watch out with those cards, guys. I mean, we... I don't know how to keep them the way they are. They're fine now, but eventually I I think that they're going to be KYC'd because they're physical things. I, I don't know. I don't know how to, I, I, I literally don't know how to do that. I'm, I mean, how to keep uh, these uh, gift cards out of the clutches of the United States government and clutches they are, but we need to. PayPal is rumored to be eyeing the acquisition crypto or acquisition of the crypto custodian BitGo. Thank God it's not BitPay. Although honestly, I'm damn surprised that they're going uh, after BitGo and not BitPay. BitPay seems a perfect fit. One asshole for another. Samuel Haig's going to tell us about it. Cointelegraph uh, written 11 hours ago. Shortly after it was revealed that PayPal will launch crypto payments in 2021, Rumors are circulating that payment the payments giant is looking to purchase a digital asset custodian. Global, <clears throat> sorry, anonymous sources cited in the report claim that the two companies may reach an agreement within a matter of weeks. BitGo is a multi-sig custodian that was founded in 2013. In 2018, the company raised $15 million in a round led by Goldman Sachs and Galaxy Digital. However, the deal is believed to be far from certain, with the report noting, quote, talks could still fall apart and PayPal could opt to buy other targets, and that would be BitPay. I'm, I'm saying that for myself. I, I think it's going to end up being BitPay no matter what you do. The rumors follow this week's announcement that PayPal will be launching crypto payment services from next year, which was the catalyst for a quick double-digit percentage price push for Bitcoin. Not everyone is overjoyed with PayPal's potential acquisition, with the official account of ThorChain expressing concerns about the decentralization of wrapped BTC, which actually doesn't exist. Please stop lying about it. Uh, Given most of the Bitcoin looked in the protocol are stored with BitGo. Uh, Yesterday, Melton Demir's, Chief Security Officer of Crypto Asset Manager CoinShares predicted that PayPal will seek to launch a stablecoin after the payments company left the Governance Association of Facebook's Libra project. Yeah, Facebook's Libra is just going to fall apart. I, it's, ah, man, that was, God, that's just, honestly, I'm surprised that Mark Zuckerberg wasn't able to pull that off. He's been able to do damn near anything he's ever wanted to do. And yet Libra is just a smoldering pile of garbage anyway, but that's going to do it for the morning roundup.
All right, I got time for a joke here. Uh, Dad says jokes. Uh, let's see here. Uh, when was this? Oh, I guess this was sometime yesterday. I tried to sue the airline for misplacing my luggage, but I lost my case. Never doubt the dad joke ever under any circumstances. Okay, later on today, it appears that I am going to be part of a uh, the Swan Lounge uh, uh, podcast, or actually, it's a YouTube channel. Um, I, that'll be fun. I'm looking. For, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, I get to meet yet some more Bitcoiners that I wasn't able to meet at Bitblock Boom, and I'm looking forward to it. Uh, it's. I I don't know if it streams live or not, but it's 2.30 Central Daylight Time today. And I I believe that's going to be, yeah, like also known as Chicago time. So 2.30, somewhere around there, uh, I'll be in. uh, So, you know, look for it. It's Swan Lounge. Um, I'll try to have a a link to it in the show notes. Uh, But you know what? I guess I'll see you on the other side. This has been Bitcoin and... And I'm your host, David Bennett. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and hope to see you again real soon. Have a great day.